you can make the business case to say having volunteers is cheaper than paying paid staff and paying the hourly rate for for those individuals. But it goes so much deeper than that because the unquantifiable, which is difficult to do, is what does it mean to the experience? And this is where I would talk to the personal experience from London 2012 and the the impact of the games makers and the 70,000 volunteers that we had. So you know, always with games and events, there, there will be folks who will check and challenge the organizing committee about why are you utilizing volunteers and not providing these guys as paid opportunities. But there's just this intangible spirit that volunteers bring to, to events. That was Andy Newman, Director of Workforce and Operations for Birmingham Commonwealth Games 2022. I've been fortunate enough to know Andy now for many years and regard him as one of the best in the business when it comes to volunteer and paid workforce management. Personally, his leadership and commitment to championing the volunteers has always been a significant driver in the way we operate our business, and I'm confident that after listening to this podcast, you'll be inspired to reconsider the way that you value your volunteers as well. Working alongside some of the world's biggest workforce programs starting at London 2012, then to Tough Mudder, then to Houston Super Bowl, and now Birmingham 2022 Commonwealth Games, Andy draws on his experience to discuss the true value of volunteering. While most organizations focus on the financial contribution volunteers provide, we discuss the more intangible value that is experience. On this episode of the podcast, we take a closer look at how firstly Tough Mudder built their hugely successful and sustainable volunteer community with a database of over 125,000 engaged volunteers. We also discuss how Andy and his team revolutionized the way that the Super Bowl utilized volunteers to ensure a lasting legacy within their communities with technology at the forefront. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, then welcome. The Engage Volunteer podcast aims to highlight the ways in which organizations and individuals are engaged in their communities to connect them to events and causes that they're passionate about. The best way to support us is to click follow wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to get your feedback on podcasts and any suggestions you may have on guests that you'd love to hear from. So please do feel free to get in touch with us. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Andy Newman, so good to have you on the Engage Volunteer podcast, mate. How are you up there in Birmingham? I'm doing fantastic. It's, it's great to be with you. Good stuff, mate. Good stuff. Now, mate, we've, we've known each other a long time. Give the listeners a picture of your role now for the Com Games and sort of the operation you're leading there. Sure. So I'm the Director of Workforce and Operations for Birmingham 2022 and the Commonwealth Games. Joined the organising committee literally about a year or so ago to the day. And so my role really looks at a few a few big pieces. So it's the all of the volunteer recruitment. So all of those volunteer managers out there are familiar with this journey from attraction to recruitment to training and then ultimately the, the games operations. And we're looking for around 13,000 plus volunteers for Birmingham workforce planning and operations. And so uh, at games time, we'll have a workforce of around 50,000. That includes those volunteers, but also staff and contractors that will be our largest bucket. So I've got a sizable team looking at and understanding what our headcount requirements are across the organising committee, which which is a fair task unto itself. And then the workforce operations at games time. All of the uniforming. Uh, so we'll have around a quarter of a million uniform items that we're going to be distributing to the workforce. It's just amazing how many people think that they're designers and have an opinion. So it's one of those things, right? Everything that's publicly facing, there's a lot of folks that have an interest and want to have a say. So there's a lot of governance and a lot of stakeholder management from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. Employment and skills. So there's a big legacy component component to uh, to Birmingham. So we're making a real commitment that 75% of uh, of games opportunities go to folks from local communities. 
And so that's not only volunteers, but also all of those paid opportunities across contracting and the like. So that sits within my realm. And then just lastly, the work- workforce systems, uh, something that you guys, I think, know a little bit about. So uh, <laughs> it, it underpins everything that we do. And so, you know, if you can't effectively uh, measure something, it's really difficult to manage it. And that's where a great system like Rostify kind of comes into play. So. Yeah, I think it's a very succinct sentence about that that makes sense. Yes. So you got a little bit on your plate then, Andy, just a little bit. But it's fun, right? I mean, uh, we, spend, <laughs> we spend more time at work than we do sometimes with our families. So uh, <laughs> if we don't enjoy what we're doing, and I'm guessing this is what we're going to get into from a, as part of this podcast, that um, you know, I feel very, very lucky to be doing what I'm doing and to have built up the team that I have. So uh, yeah, it's, mm. it's a bit of a privilege for me, honestly. Yeah, awesome, mate. Uh, it's a great role that you're in now and, and certainly well-deserved. But it hasn't always been in volunteers that you've worked, Andy. For people listening, I guess a lot of guests we have on the podcast – volunteer management and working with workforce and people hasn't always been where they've started from or it's not necessarily a degree they complete at university and go straight into it I would say barely any actually now that I think about it can you talk to us a bit about your journey of you know maybe from university to where where, where you get to now yeah I mean I think it's fair to say that I'm not intellectually um, off the charts by any stretch of the imagination like everything I've done I'm a bit of a grafter so I went to university both at um, Leicester here in here in England and also Colorado State University for my for my third year and I had no clue what I wanted to do. What were you studying? So I've always been a big sports fan, mate. But, um, yeah. but when I did the degree, I did history and politics. So it was kind of American studies. I chose that degree because it honestly gave me a chance to get out to America for a year, <laughs> um, which I figured is as, is as good a reason as any to do yeah, that. Degree. Totally. But my uncle, my uncle, funnily enough, he did it as well way back when, and he he had a very successful career. So, in not knowing exactly what I wanted to do, it's something that um, and similar to work, you start to look at something where it could give you transferable skills that you could apply to multiple different sectors and sort of take that with you. So, um, yeah, I joined Barclays Bank probably about six months or so after um, I graduated, and I've done all of the summer jobs that a lot of people have probably done out there, and not always great ones. And so you sort of take that. And use that as a bit of inspiration to sort of say, you know, I've, I've just got to put myself out there. And I'll probably say that on a few occasions. So with Barclays, I started literally on this sort of um, independent scheme that was set up for me that was, if you prove yourself, we will provide opportunities for you. So I started in the retail network as a uh, as a cashier, understood that role, personal, personal banker, and sort of made my way up to sort of the branch manager and understanding how the retail um, world really works. And ironically, the people who were supporting me in that, all of them left the bank within the space of about 18 months. And so all of those men that were there to help me and keep moving on weren't there anymore. And so my break came as a personal banker sitting out on the retail floor. And Julie, I think was her name, came from the head office and was doing a project in uh, in the retail network. And we just got on really well. I think she really liked the way that I engaged with, um, with the customer's and it was a new product that we were trying to sell. And she invited me to continue to be part of the project and back to the head office. And I just sort of used that as a kind of a gateway and a pathway in, because that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be delivering projects out of the main office. And that's how I yeah, I sort of got my bit of a break and then make, uh, made my way into Barclays Bank in the head office and delivering programs at a national level for about the next two years. So all in all, I was with Barclays for around four to five years. Mm-hmm. And were you, were you enjoying that work other than the challenge and trying to work your way around it? Were you like, man, I could see myself doing this forever? Um, no, in all honesty. And I think you know, that's where you have that kind of look yourself in the mirror type moment. 
and it's an, it's an easy one is to you know how easy is it to get out of bed in the morning and there are days where it's harder than it should be and so i've I say i think I've, I've loved sports since since i've been incredibly young and i was chatting to a lot of folks there at barclays and i think once you get to a certain length of time in an organization it's that much harder to leave so i just made a call and there was a a role that was coming up working out of the West Midlands in the black country, quite a heavily deprived area in the black country, working for uh, something called a county sports partnership as their workforce partnership manager. And I just, um, yeah, sort of took the plunge to say, I'm not sure if this is going to work out, but I'm going to regret it if I don't give it a go. And so I gave it a go. Yeah. And then from there, London Games obviously was a big moment for your career. I recall you telling me stories about how far you were travelling for work at the time. Yeah. We're talking about early mornings. What, uh, what, talk to me about games. What was your role and what was your commute? Yeah, so, um, hey, I still remember the day where, and uh, shout out to Kerry Nash, and her name may come up more than once, um, who offered me the role at London 2012. So I was uh, working in the uh, in the workforce team, in the volunteer team as the partnership manager. So I sort of oversaw ultimately all of our external relationships connected to the volunteer program, working with the government Olympic executive, um, the GLA, that's the mayor's office, the top tier ones and tier two sponsors, and really helped lead the volunteer strategy, authoring that and leading on some sort of some of the bigger special projects. So with that, we needed to um, interview 125,000 people to find the 70,000 volunteers. So I had a uh, a little team behind me and we went around the country finding the thousands of people that were going to conduct all of the interviews for us. It was projects like that and going over to Sochi and supporting Sochi in terms of their volunteer strategy as well. It's those four years because I joined just before Beijing all the way through, as you, as you kind of say, sort of laid the foundation for everything that I've done so far. And it's, again, you just got to put yourself out there. I joined 2012 one week after my eldest son was born. He was he was a week old. I was halfway through my MBA. Yeah, your masters too. Yeah, <laughs> three hours each way um, to get down from Leamington Spa to Canary Wharf. So six hours on the train. I look back now and think how in I'm not quite sure how I did that, and I struggled. Right, it was um, sustainable for about the ten months that I could do it for until we moved. But I think there are these times where for, sort of fortune favors the brave, and sometimes and so. Don't be fearful, right? To anyone that's listening, if you are worried about taking a risk, I would, you know, life is kind of short. Take take that risk and just sort of go for it. And if it doesn't work out, that's we just learn from it and we uh, we get stronger for it. Yeah, well, mate, it's a uh, it's an incredible story. I'm sure in your time you've heard a lot of excuses for people saying oh, it's not quite for me or it's a bit inconvenient, a bit out of my way. But six hours a day commuting is uh, something else. Nothing I've heard before, anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mind reading a book on a train, but I think I did more sleeping than I did reading. Than, uh, than... <laughs> I was going to ask you what you got up to. Is there any Game Boys or anything kept you interested? Jeez, <laughs> um, no. G- genuinely, it was like the day started to blur, so um, it was a bit of a read and then a sleep. But you saw the oh, same wow. people. I wasn't the only one. Oh, really? There you go. It was really fascinating. You see the same individuals and. Just from Monday through to probably Thursday, you could just see the body language just sort of dropping. <laughs> Slouching. Slouching more in the seat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, very good, mate. Well, so so London, clearly uh, an incredible experience for you. And I think there's a lot of friends that we both know that have worked for you in, in that games and have gone on to great things. We just had AC and Catherine from FIFA on the latest podcast who really – similar to you, got her first opportunity by taking that chance and, and you gave her that opportunity too. So it's funny how the world uh, comes back around. But from from Olympics, um, 
where did you go from there? Yeah, so it was, um, hey, and this was a, a little bit of a learning curve for me as well, that I did not think much about what was I going to do after the games. Uh, <laughs> have this huge build-up and huge hype and you just get busier and busier and busier. And then you realise that the games is over, the organising committee is being disbanded. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And so uh, it was interesting, uh, an organisation that many of you guys may have heard, Tough Mudder, um, was just in this sort of rocket ship type moment where it was one of mm. the, the fastest growing businesses, certainly within the events sort of um, sector. And met with uh, with Will Dean, one of the, the founders and CEO of, at the time, and we sort of had a chat. Ironically, a guy who was part of my MBA course, Lucas Barkley, he was heading up the operations there at Tough Mudder, and they knew that work, the workforce space it, they had really invested no real time or didn't have any um, sort of talent in that space and they needed to build a workforce de- department within Tough Mudder. So he reached out, he knew what I had done at London 2012, shared as to whether it was something that I wanted to be a part of, that it would mean moving the family across to New York. But I saw that as a really, you know, another sort of exciting adventure for me and my family. So yes, yeah, so ultimately, I think it was about four or five months after the Paralympic Games, I made the first move over to New York and then uh, and then the family joined me thereafter. And so we spent... Uh, three years living in Long Island, commuting to Brooklyn for, for Tough Mudder. Yeah. Not an easy thing, uprooting the family. How'd you go? Yeah, no, it's not. Who your wife and uh, how, how does it go, especially little ones at home? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I guess one bit of, one bit of advantage is my wife is American. Um, and so she that had, uh, <laughs> you know, bless her, she, she's a far stronger person than I am. And she had spent the last 10 years in the UK with me. And so mm. um, I've always loved the United States. So the opportunity to uh, to just move over there and then for my wife, even though her family's in Colorado, to at least be perhaps more than halfway closer to her family, I sort of felt that um, that was an opportunity that she, she really deserved. And then my kids... I think they were about three and five at the time. So they were definitely young, young enough at that point where it wasn't going to interfere too much with them at that time. Yeah, awesome. And then so the role at Tough Mudder, clearly you had our, our good friend Emma as well join you there and had a great team and quite a wild ride, Tough Mudder, uh, from those early days and coming out to Australia. That's when we got to know each other, when the opportunity, when we had some half <laughs> system that we were kind of building and thinking about in 2014, 2015. Yeah, so if, it, if you remember, it goes back. So um, we're obviously delivering our Tough Mudders in Australia and temporary staff with the role that I had. So I was sort of overseeing the global workforce operations and we didn't really have a, a solution right for the temporary staff that we needed to deliver our events there in Australia and so you guys um through uh event workforce group I think it was mm-hmm. at the time mm-hmm. um had the relationships with universities and providing that career pathway for the students to gain experience in volunteerism and then take that on to other paid opportunities so mm-hmm. that's where we really kicked off our relationship from that standpoint and we came down to Australia and started to chat and I was chatting about what we were doing from a, a volunteer management perspective and that there really isn't a system out there that could do everything that I wanted it to do. The system we were using at the time couldn't grow at the speed that we needed it to. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you took an idea and you, you ran with it. <laughs> I think we both did. I think we both as shared risk in, uh, in that journey. Um, but it just in, in incredible timing. We happened to be building a system very selfishly for our own good to manage 20-odd thousand young university students we had at the time, the event workforce placing them into staff. And I think our, our vision was aligned about going, how do we automate as much of this 
crappy process as possible. And and at the same time, I think this is the big thing that Tough Mudder taught us was give those volunteers a great experience. I think where we were at at the time was basically people had to re-sign up every single time. It was very tough to, you know, register. And for a university student wanting to give their heart and soul to work at things, we were treating them like a new person every time. And I think that's one thing that Tough Mudder taught us in the early days and that was coming from yours and Emma's vision that, when you gave us a nod, you guys somehow squeezed into the Tough Mudder budget to fly out to back to Australia, didn't you? That's right. Yeah, no, I remember that uh, that week very, very well. So uh, we did not get the visa that we needed to fly to Australia <laughs> from New York, and so uh, we were we were panicking. I don't remember that really? And I think uh, we were just some amazing person at the JFK Airport really looked after us. And I think it was, um, I think we got through at about a quarter to 10 in the morning. Absolutely, we were probably sweated through every every piece of clothing we were wearing. And there was a, a bar next door to the gate. And I think we managed to get through to the gate 15 minutes before the plane was going to leave. It was that tight. And we, we're, we're having a drink. We're ha- I don't care what time it is. <laughs> after everything that we just gone through. Uh, so, uh, yeah. And then uh, we just had just uh, a really great week with you guys. Yeah, a lot of whiteboard time and just talking about the journey. I think Tough Mudder at the time. Uh, and still to date, the, the journey that we went on for that volunteer engagement, Tough Mudder will always be regarded as the, the world leaders, in our opinion, about the way to treat volunteers and engage them. Do you want to just tell the listeners about the size of the program that Tough Mudder was at the time? I recall Tough Mudder was one of the fastest growing businesses in the world at the time, not just events. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we very, very quickly ballooned to you know, over a million participants um, globally around the world taking part in those events, you know, r- ramped up from, you know, a dozen to tw- 20 or so events um, that were happening primarily in the United States and Canada to to really being over North America, Europe and uh, and Australasia as well. And getting up to sort of, you know, 50 or so events and just how that operation grew was remarkable. And to this day, you know, I still look back on my four years with the Olympic Games as something that will sort of stay with me experientially wise. But the team that was there at Tough Mudder in terms of just how entrepreneurial and passionate they were about the brand and about the organization. And I think what um, stood Tough Mudder in great stead and what we really brought, I hope, into the volunteer program was about creating a community. And that was the the real strength, I think, behind, behind Tough Mudder. And, that you know, it's that, that Mudder Nation, as we called it, and uh, created a program where the participants recognized the value of the volunteers and we created a proposition and an experience that we recognised how valuable the volunteers were. And, you know, we'll go on to discuss this perhaps in more detail. But I think, you know, what makes a great volunteer programme is this is this healthy rub between what the business needs to achieve and what you as within your team, whether it's a workforce or volunteer related role, can achieve because you've got to have one foot in the business camp and one foot in the volunteer camp. And I think anyone who removes that foot from the workforce of volunteer camp and it becomes all about the business will lose sight of just how special um, and what you need to do to create create that community and create that experience that you need for volunteers and, and be really sort of customer-centric. That's what we did with Tough Mudder. We had a community of volunteers that I think exceeded 125,000 when, um, when I left the organisation at that point in time, which I think was almost unheard of. And these were repeat volunteers. You know, I think that was incredibly important with a lot of these events it's one and done and then you lose those individuals but these guys felt so passionate about being part of that team and about that community that we could sustain it and we could just continue to build on it year after year 
I think that though is a mentality that a lot of event organizers have is that they're just volunteers and oh, we're lucky to have them this year. Hopefully next year we might get them back, but maybe not. And that's just volunteering. And that's an expectation I think organizations have. You guys had the opposite about going, how do we invest in them? And I always remember talking about that they're your customers. It's like, <laughs> it's, and it's, and they are they're commercially. If you do not have them, you, you, you spend for for paid staff to come in. I remember during your early days or midway through, there was a you, you guys managed to save a significant amount of money, so you actually made it an economic investment in volunteer program because you managed to spend less on because you're actually able to engage volunteers and them to come back. That taught me a lot about how valuable volunteers are and how why why it's a proof case of businesses should invest in volunteers. Do you want to talk to me a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two easy, two easy quantifiables, and then you've got one that is that is difficult, but is incredibly important to try and bring into that that sort of business model as to how you how we did things at Tough Mudder in the first instance. So, I don't want to take um, the conversation down the route where people undervalue just how important volunteers are, and they see volunteers as a free resource. Right, you don't organizations and event organizers don't pay volunteers absolutely, but there is a financial investment in volunteers. There certainly should be, and it certainly should be significant. You know, whether that is going through the attraction, the recruitment, absolutely the training, depending on the depth of the event. If we're doing a Commonwealth Games. We're going to be delivering. I think it's nearly um, two hundred fifty thousand hours of training to our thirteen thousand volunteers to get them ready. There is a significant investment for for, for that to happen. And you can make the business case to say having volunteers is cheaper than paying paid staff and paying the hourly rate for for those individuals. But it goes so much deeper than that because the unquantifiable, which is difficult to do, is what does it mean to the experience? And this is where you know I will I will take and talk to the personal experience from London 2012 and the the impact of, of the games makers and the 70,000 volunteers that we had. So. You know, always with with games and events, there there will be folks who will check and challenge the organising committee about why are you utilising volunteers and not providing these guys as paid opportunities. But there is there's just this intangible spirit that volunteers bring to to events, and you know, as part of the closing ceremony in the Olympic Stadium. And Shannon, you know me. I mean, I I love uh, I love my Coldplay. Um, they were there as part of the closing ceremony. Rihanna was there. We brought out the Spice Girls again. Um, it was. <laughs> An amazing show to, to cap what was an amazing game. But the longest and loudest standing ovation was for the volunteers and for the games makers. Everybody in that stadium stood up and applauded the volunteers. And I think that was for a couple of reasons. One, it, they really represented everything that is great about the UK public. And I think the UK public be the best of them in those individuals. Sure. Very true. But it was the experience that they provided to everybody that came to the games and whether that was the athletes themselves, but more importantly, you know, the spectators. And so I can still remember again, a quote that Seb Coe, who was the chairman and everybody knows, you know, an Olympian, Olympian and a gold medalist himself, a newspaper reporter asked him what was his most abiding memory that he had from the games. And clearly, you know, he was, <laughs> he was everywhere and such has had such an amazing role. He remembers a specific conversation he had with a doctor on the London Underground, wearing his Games Maker uniform. Unfortunately, if, if your listeners remember, a day after the Games were awarded to London 2012, we had the, the bus bombing in um, in London. Oh, was that then? Yeah, okay. Yep. So we had gone from just this 
national moment of celebration to one that was obviously um, mm-hmm. catastrophic mm-hmm. and for, for all of those families involved. And the doc, there was a doctor and he was involved in that bombing. And he then became a games maker and a volunteer as part of the games. And I think his rough quote was, I saw the worst in humanity and now I've seen the best in humanity in terms of what his experience was at games time. And so that's that's the intangible. So for Tough Mudder, we could have continued to pay for those um, contractors um, and temporary staff to come in and keep on delivering what they did. But there is no way that the the event experience would have, would have been and was what it was if it weren't for all of the volunteers that we had at every single event thereafter as we built up that volunteer team that, that came after. So it is looking at the savings that you can make absolutely by utilising volunteers, but look at just the retention that you might have in terms of the customers, the people coming back, um, what it means for people who buy merchandise and other things, because if you can start to capture and quantify what that experience means to the customer um, and the impact that that volunteer or the broader volunteer team has had, then it's, you're onto a winning formula. The last one and where Rostify was, was so great is if you get the right system, then you can make sure that you resource up accordingly. And so the more intuitive the system, the smarter the system, the more automated the system, you can actually then apportion your resources to actually deliver value and give their time where value can be really recognized as opposed to working in Excel spreadsheets and spending hour after hour after hour doing something which otherwise could be done in a few minutes with the smart with the right system. So that's, again, perhaps just the third prong where um, we sort of created the business model to be able to work with you guys and continue to sort of ramp up from there. Yeah. Yeah, incredible journey. <laughs> it's almost like someone could write a documentary about the Tough Mudder journey and, and the volunteers are the heartbeat of what that was. Without the, the volunteers, were as important as the obstacles in, in the way that I always experienced it and, and from the way that you guys worked. Um, and your, your incredible stories about volunteers, I had the same moment when I got to Houston for the, our first Super Bowl working with those people. <laughs> Unbelievable. Welcome to H-Town at the airport, just banging clappers, being like this is the best day in the world. It's a Tuesday afternoon in Houston because they're just so proud of showing off their city. You clearly went from – you went directly from Tough Mudder to Super Bowl, didn't you? That's right, yeah. yeah. And you were workforce director there at Super Bowl, worked with a great team. We had the great chance of working with each other then. How did you find the experience at your first Super Bowl? Yeah, no, it was it was special, right? I mean, I think um, that move from Tough Mudder to the Super Bowl was about um, – the desire to get back into professional sport and those big global events. Sure. And I think uh, it was probably a little bizarre that um, a Brit was was leading the volunteer mm. program for, you know, what I think is the biggest one-day sort of event that there is on the sporting calendar from that standpoint. But, uh, yeah, it was. we were excited about the move to Houston as a, as a family. And I think after probably about a month being in Houston and just that sort of Southern hospitality that people talk to. And then, I, I mean, I kid you not, unless unless you folks have been to in Houston, Texas, just how big the game of football is, it's it's go big or go home. And so that, com- that combination of us as an organising committee for the Super Bowl, um, wanting to do it right and, and do it well, um, combined with the Southern hospitality of, of the Houstonians, I mean, I kind of knew that I was onto a winning formula there, and we needed the ten thousand volunteers um, for, for that. And it was it was really special. And I do think that we've created a new model for the NFL and for uh, for future NFL cities, Super Bowl cities. Seriously, yeah, uh, you, you changed the game. <laughs> it's the way that we've always seen it, Andy. 
can you quantify that? Like it, when you say we've, we've, we've changed the way that they operate and manage volunteers, like how so? I mean, I think, um, so I was, again, fortunate to be in San Francisco for Super Bowl 50, which was the, the year prior. You know, and they did they they did a they did a really good job, and I think in all of this, there's there's always um, this sort of knowledge transfer process of learning from what sure. prior cities have done. But I think what what I had saw experientially, personally, and professionally within London, the impact that volunteers can not only have on the individual events, but just the whole atmosphere around the city can be a change. Right. So w- what I always kind of share is that if someone's ever lucky enough. And we're doing this the morning after England has won. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty unbelievable, right? That anyone who is fortunate enough to have a ticket to go to that game, they will have a perception as to what that sporting occasion is going to be like. And they hope that England is going to win. They know that the atmosphere for it is, is going to be absolutely incredible. And they will remember that for sure. But when I've done events before, it's those, it's those surprise moments, those magical moments that typically don't always happen around the sport itself. So it could be, I've just got off the train, and let's say it was at Stratford as part of London 2012, and they come into contact with those volunteers en route to the Olympic Park or the venue that they're going to be at, and that person recognises that they're wearing a French T-shirt and they welcome them in their native native language, or they're giving them a high five, or they're singing to them, as as you alluded to, that we did in uh, at the airports in Houston. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's those moments where people are just unabashedly just, I was not expecting that. And it's those moments that will stay with people for a long, long time. So within my sort of strategy for for the Super Bowl, it was how can we create a program and a team of volunteers that can have that level of impact, knowing that they were going to be at the first and last touch point in the airports and uh, over 50 hotels around the city, but then all of the key activations around that. And so that was, I think, when you start to tell that story and then the venue the uh, the, vol- the volunteer center hq that we created there in houston and the whole look and the feel and the vibe that sat around that when the nfl and the future host cities came to see that and how we had set ourselves up the foundations and the systems that underpinned all of that just i think combining all of those elements together just as i say really did create a new model which has now sort of been replicated and you know you guys have been what part of the last four or five plus now super five plus. yeah for six to come, yeah. I think it's uh, it's funny you've started in banking, but you've you've uh, you've always managed to get investment. <laughs> so you probably started your career managing investments, and then throughout your career, you've been able to convince the higher ups to invest in volunteer programs, where I think a lot of people around the world struggle to do so. And yes, let's let's not ignore the fact that Tough Mudder and Super Bowl and these have these organisations have resources to do so, but. It's almost the number one problem in volunteering around the world is the lack of investment and value perhaps people put on it. And when you don't invest and you don't get the returns and you just expect it to be almost mediocre, I guess is perhaps a tough way of saying it, but uh, perhaps that's what our experience has been for the last 10 years working in this space. Yeah, it's, you know, um, I think a lot of better people out there than, than me know when it comes to um, those sorts of conversations, it very much is about trying to tell a story mm. and, and to h- how do you present that story. And I mean, obviously, I'm very sort of passionate about the work that I do. And I think that comes across in, in the work that I've done and the stories that I've sought to try and share with the folks that I've reported into and what I'm trying to achieve. And it's, I think once you've started that journey and you've got that initial buy-in, 
the um, the C-suite individuals very quickly get very excited by what is what is happening and the momentum mm-hmm. that it's creating and the change that it's creating within the business. So I think the hard part is that initial opening up of that door. And I think once then the door is open and you've you're, you've got the chance to then sort of prove yourself, I think the rest then can can come quite quite easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. So following Super Bowl, you stuck around in Houston for a while. Yeah. And, um, and obviously the family, a beautiful place to live. And then knock on the shoulder to say there might be an opportunity back in the UK. Um, yeah. Yeah. Talk to me a bit about that. Yeah. it's. Um, I mean, for everybody who's in the event space, it's uh, it's a super small incestuous world. And so this is where I, I mentioned... Um, a name earlier on that was that was Kerry Nash who offered me the role at London 2012 who was the head of workforce at those games she um, was involved at a senior level in terms of just sort of building up the organizing committee for for Birmingham and we've stayed stayed in touch and so I sort of let it be known to her that um, you know I was starting to think about a possible move back to the UK and started conversations about where they might be with with their respective workforce and volunteer efforts yeah, and as I say, sort of the the, re- the rest is history. You know, again, I think feel very lucky to be in the role that I am now. But again, I think it's in part due to the work that I've done before and the relationships that, that have been created over the last decade or so that sort of stood me in the stead for them to uh, to take that sort of jump and offer me the role right now. Yeah, for our listeners, the the way that Com Games is structured with the CGF is a little different to how it's been done before. Can you give some context to that and sort of from a game structure? Sure. So absolutely, there's still the, the core organising committee there that um, that is obviously there working very closely with the Commonwealth Games Federation to put on the games. I think what we've seen and what the IOC has done also for the Olympic Games is that start to recognise that um, they need to be perhaps a little bit smarter in terms of how they go about the the bid process and the hosting of games, and that they need to be more efficient in their in their delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same applies to the to the Commonwealth Games, and so there is a joint venture between CGF in terms of setting up this this partnership and 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 a team of individuals that are connected with uh, an entity, a private entity called Sport Five, where you've got individuals who have got um, real sort of global event experience that can support yep. the upstanding of an organising committee and, and the delivery of the games to really sort of drive those efficiencies and and ultimately you know re- reduce budget where it's possible, but put on the games at a certain standard, but understand where are those efficiencies that can then actually be rolled on to future game cycles thereafter, which I think is really important as opposed to starting from from the ground up again for, for what may come in 2026 and 2030. Yeah, fantastic. You've been really great with your time, Andy, and it's been, uh, I've really enjoyed this. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. So it's been great to go through that journey with you. Maybe just a couple of final ones for you about, maybe just for our listeners about Everyone's trying to engage with volunteers in different ways. I think through COVID, never before has it been more challenging perhaps to, to get volunteers back and to then to retain them. People's time is now shorter. You know, there's plenty of things to be doing other than volunteering. Is there any advice that you give to people out there about the best way to engage with volunteers and to make sure that they stick around with your organisation? Yeah, um, it's a really good question. And I think it, each is going to very much depend on yeah, whom the whom the organisation and what. But if any of the individuals are in the the heart of doing what they need to do, as opposed to a new business that's starting up, I would probably urge folks just to sort of really take take a pause and just introspectively look look inside as to where where are you at now and where do you want to be, and recognise that you might need to change some things. 
and just think about what that proposition needs to be for for that for those volunteers to create the community that I sort of spoke to a little bit before. Because you know, if you keep on churning out this the same old thing, then um, by definition, you're not, not always going to be able to move things forward in the, in the way that you uh, that you want to. So, I think if if it is you know charities that have volunteers or, or on their books and just looking to continue to build on those, the hard moment is just trying to I think ring fence that time to reflect and just think where do you want to be in a 12 to 24 months time and start to think about how they can start to change things up and just be very responsive to the environment that we do find ourselves in. And that very candidly is what we're doing now. I think we're all in uncharted territory. We don't in all honesty know what attrition levels are going to be for the Commonwealth Games. They exist, but we don't know to what level. Mm -hmm. So I think just remaining flexible and having those alternative solutions and pathways, thinking about those communications as to how you can keep volunteers engaged i think that's one area where people can be transactional with volunteers and i think mm -hmm. uh, if mm -hmm. you can numbers on a spreadsheet absolutely so just think about you know creating that sort of personable emotive type um, engagement communications which you know a, a lot of great organizations are doing now in terms of how they're managing volunteers but that makes those individuals feel special they understand therefore why they're giving of their time and what they're going to get back mm -hmm. And this is the, the balance of technology, and this is not a, a Rostify question, this is any uh, technology question. It's about clearly that's impossible for you to create that personal experience with the, the thousands of individuals, right, that have registered with you. Technology enables you to have that personalised journey with those people. There's, there's perhaps two camps, one camp going, yes, that makes sense for technology, and then there's the other camp that says, no, I prefer to have that personal relationship. At a point in time, that personal relationship is unachievable and therefore when you don't have systems to help create a personal then there's no personal relationship well i, I mean i think for me that the two are very much intertwined um sure you know the, the, the technology for me provides a lot of those personal touches or enables those personal touches so if you don't have the right technology you know even s simple things of being able to personalize the communications out to to the volunteers your ability to be able to um to react to and actually provide a really good experience because for me a, a personable experience is one for the volunteer where it's something that they don't even need to think about because you recognize mm, how invaluable their time is so yes. you've already understood what that process is going to be for that volunteer from application all the way through to what that experience is going to look like and how they're going to give their time and what are those touch points and making those touch points as seamless um, and as straightforward as possible so if it's i'm being offered a role or I'm being offered my schedule and shifts, how straightforward and simple can you make that? And how can you align that to the information they shared within their application form as, as a good example? That's personal, mm -hmm. but that's also relies on a system to be able to do that for you. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you have those touch points, again, you know, that's the opportunity to have that face-to-face -face touch point, whether it's delivery of training or the interview or come the actual event itself. Yeah. Given that there's first Super Bowl, you launch Regos in Feb, the events in Feb, yeah. effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Twelve month journey. A lot changes in twelve months for for an individual, especially when it's you're not getting paid for it. Do you do you have the twelve months of communication structured before you go into that, knowing that you could go over the over the top emailing them every two weeks saying how are you what's the fine balance between annoying people and making sure that they feel engaged over a long period of time yeah i mean i don't think there's a an exact science to this but um no. i mean typically where you start it's going to be you know 
first touch point application form and your event and then what definitively do you need to do in terms of those core milestones building up to that there's an interview in there there's a training in there there's often the distribution of uniform in there once you've got those key touch points you then start to look at what are the gaps that exist between each of those yeah typically i um, i probably wouldn't want more than a month where you haven't engaged someone in some capacity and that then can be either a tactical email in terms of we would like you to do an action on our behalf, i.e. we're inviting you to your interview and your interview is going to be in a month's time. That would be a tactical yeah. thing. It could be just a newsletter and keep all, keep all peeping abreast of what's exciting and what's to come and whether that's pertaining to the event itself or the volunteer journey. So, yeah, that, that's that's my sort of uh, sim- simple one to that. Yeah, that makes sense, mate. Thank you. Let's finish it with your, uh, your best experience working with volunteers. Is there one moment that jumps out to you? I thought, I thought this question would come. Um, Sweetie should have dizzy. You would have, you would have thought I would have planned for it as well. Um, <laughs> I could have sent you the questions, but I no, didn't. no, no, no. Th- then it wouldn't be. Uh, yeah, we, you wouldn't get this awkward silence as I'm trying to wrap. <laughs> right, it get this great, great quality audio. I mean, it's it's really hard to pin to pin it down. I mean, I think um, I, so there were those moments where I didn't think that moment would be special. Was was really cool. So you alluded to the the experience that we created at the airports in Houston. I was only able to get up there one day because I was just down in the city uh, for the majority of the time for the Super Bowl. And so they they just took the guidelines that we shared with them from a training and just ran with it. And just to see everyone coming off the plane and coming down the gateways and the, uh, the God of honor that we had created for everybody, the smiles, the laughs, mm-hmm. the tears that they had created for that was amazing. We did the orientation training at the Toyota Center in downtown Houston where the Rockets play basketball. And so we had all 10,000 volunteers in that one venue for, for that training session. And we had uh, music playing before we were starting the program and everybody up was out of their seats dancing and singing along to the songs. And I was just standing just on the court, just sort of looking around going, this is really pretty cool in terms of, you know, going from individuals to then having this team of 10,000 folks and really replicating that sort of similar experience at 2012, being in that Olympic stadium, not necessarily with volunteers, but with the team that I had worked with for the last four years. And I think we probably all had a tissue in our hand at that point in time where you sort of felt the public respond to what we had sort of done and sort of just were so thankful for, for the for the impact of the volunteers i think uh yeah those are the moments that sort of stick with me for sure i think that um summarizes a few points from the podcast we've experienced so far that, about getting out of the way and letting the energy take over and the, the, the purpose thousands of individuals and you're one person right there's only so much you can do and control and we could talk for another hour about letting go of control and letting things sort of take their own shape and form and i think that's the exact outcome that you sign up for and that's the three hour commute there and back to to get that energy and that that result but it's not you it's them creating that i think it's a it's a nice way to finish andy so mate thank you so much for your time it's been really valuable and i think a lot of people just get a lot from this so appreciate your time mate hey it's uh, always a pleasure to be with you great to see you again yeah good stuff thank you mate Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Engage Volunteer Podcast with Andy Newman. What a superstar Andy is and some incredible insight that he shared with us all. Now, if this is your first time listening, then welcome. Our podcast aims to highlight the ways in which organizations and individuals are engaging with their communities to connect them with events and causes they're passionate about, with new episodes released each Wednesday fortnight. In our next episode, we'll be joined by Matt Doherty, City Volunteer Manager at the Greater London Authority. 
Matt's most recent project has been overseeing the volunteer program for the London Euros and his next focus quickly moves on to the volunteer program for the Women Euros in 2022. Now for me, this is a podcast I've been looking forward to recording for a long time now as I see the City of London having the best volunteer program for a city anywhere in the world. For context, Team London was formed off the back of the London 2012 Olympic Games volunteer program and still runs today, engaging thousands of volunteers throughout the city in all types of volunteering work, not just major events. So for any major event or city-based volunteer leader out there, I highly recommend that you listen to Matt's episode in a fortnight's time to learn more about how you can create a volunteer legacy and what programs might look like in the years to come that look like this. We look forward to joining you in a fortnight.